Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you in song and in study of your text and in fellowship with one another and in prayer. We bless you, God, for the ways in which you are at work um, and alive in our community, and we are just so grateful for the chance to be with one another um, online and here um, that we might continue our fellowship with you and with one another. Jesus, as we turn our hearts towards your text, would you please continue to give us eyes that see and ears that hear and a heart that is moved towards you. Um, We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our wisdom series, and uh, last week, Pastor Kevin sort of closed out, you know, just quick 50, 40 plus 50 chapters of Job. So if you didn't catch up with all of Job in a two-week time period, you can go and grab that again. Um, And I don't know about you, but even just as we've sort of thought through that book and all of the ways in which people try to tackle theodicy, like how and why do bad things happen um, in the world, I keep referring back to that text often. And as I've been talking with different people in our community and as we've gone through hard things or challenging things, it's been so good to be reminded that the end of Job is you don't get an answer. God is still God. And I actually find that very comforting. <laughs> um, so, in a weird way. Mostly because I don't know any satisfying answers. Um, so, I'm, I'm really glad with just being left with wonder. Um, and, and a bit of hope. So, I hope that the Wisdom Series continues to provide that for all of us. And so now we're going to jump into the book of Psalms. Now... For those of you who aren't aware, there's 150 psalms, and we're not going to cover all of them tonight, just the first 120, just joking. Um, So we've divided them up into kind of themes, and this week we're going to be talking about the psalms of ascent, and I'll tell you all about that in a little bit. And then next week we'll talk about psalms of praise uh, with Pastor Kevin, and then I'll be back to talk about psalms of lament. Um, which are 70% of the psalms. So I get the bulk of our psalms teaching, and that's really exciting. Okay, so when we open up the book of Psalms, besides the fact that, again, if your theology growing up was open up the Bible, close your eyes, put your finger down, and find something that was almost always in the book of Psalms that God was speaking to you, which is not a bad place to hang out. Um, But the book of Psalms is a unique book in the Bible. It's a collection of poetic literature, of hymns, of prayer, of praise, lament, and meditation. If the Bible's narrative materials, like going through story of Genesis and Exodus and then uh, and Deuteronomy and also like Joshua, Judges, Ruth and all of that, first and second Samuel, Kings, etc. Um, if, if that is narrative and relating what God has done for the people, and if the prophets and the prophetic literature report what God said, and how the people did or did not listen to what God had said, then the Psalms represent the response of the people to the acts and the words of God. So the Psalms are written by people, often in prayer to God, as opposed to God saying, say these things, right? Um, so the book of the, it's really a book of the people, and the book of Psalms is especially valued for both public worship and private devotion, and has been used in Jewish and Christian practice and liturgies for millennia. Um, in fact, there are more copies of the book or the scrolls or books of Psalms than any other scroll found at the Dead Sea Scroll community in Qumran. Um, than any other biblical writing, we have Psalms throughout. If you're looking for a very brief overview of how the book of Psalms works, 
you can, again, I'm gonna give a shout out to the Bible Project on YouTube. So just go to the Bible Project YouTube and type in Psalms. And they give you a really lovely overview of how you can engage with the book of Psalms, how it's divided up into five different books, and how it does tell a narrative of our biblical story in the words and praise and lament of the people. I, though, will be jumping into Psalm of Ascents. They are called shir, which is this, the word for song, shir, ha-ma-alot, the song of the going up. And they're primarily, depending upon which, if you're reading the Greek translation, which I know you all are at the Septuagint, um, we're going to be hanging out in Psalms 120 through Psalms 134 for these songs of ascent. Now, when we talk about Psalms of Ascent, they have a variety of different words. Some of people call them gradual psalms or songs of degrees or songs of steps or stairs or songs for going up to worship or pilgrim songs. But literally, as it's just mentioned, it's like the song of the going up. It's the song of the ascent. Perhaps the psalms were sung by worshipers as they ascended the road to Jerusalem to attend the three pilgrimage festivals. Three times a year you were commanded by God, according to Deuteronomy, to go to the place where God would put God's name and go and worship God there. And that is for the Shavuot, for a feast of unleavened bread, Passover, um, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which we also call Pentecost, or the Festival of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Uh, Maybe they were sung by the Levite singers as they ascended the 15 steps up to minister at the temple. And some people actually suggest that they were composed before exile. Some people suggest they were composed during exile. And some people suggest that they were composed after the return to exile. And I probably just want to say yes to all of that. All of that is probable and possible. Um, Somebody even said maybe they're called the songs of ascent because when you sing them, it's a tune that goes up which is possible. I really do think, though, it has a lot to do with the pilgrimage journey of going to the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And so these songs of ascent or pilgrimage psalms, which are 120 to 134, um, seem to have been used as that collection, especially designed for those going up to Jerusalem. And they are one of the regularly occurring, for one of those regularly occurring festivals, and they fit a broad pattern of anticipating the journey, as we'll see. You can talk about, I have to go, and I'm a little bit nervous, or please watch out for the enemies, and setting out for it, and joyful arrival, and the concluding evening worship. And that's a nice little summary quote from Anchor Bible Dictionary, those of you wanting to do more research. Years ago, when I first went to Jerusalem in 2003, um, I was told by a rabbi that if you were going to Jerusalem, if you were going at all to Israel, and if you're going specifically to Jerusalem, even if you parachuted out of a plane and down onto the Temple Mount, you would still be going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it is the place where God puts God's name. And so the first thing I'd like to start with as we think about how the Psalms work and how we encounter them is why Jerusalem? Why this place? Because it comes into our Psalms quite a bit. For example, in the Psalm of Ascent, in Psalm 125, it says this. It starts with a song of ascents. Those who trust in Adonai are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but remain forever. Jerusalem 
mountains all around it. Thus Adonai is around his people henceforth and forever. So Jerusalem as a setting becomes an analogy for the people, a metaphor for how God surrounds us just as the mountains surround Jerusalem. Mount Zion is another word used for Jerusalem in our Bible, as is Mount Moriah. So anytime you see Mount Moriah or Mount Zion or Jerusalem itself, or Jebus um, in our earlier ancient Israelite texts, um, all of that is really referring to the same location in our geography. Jerusalem's a really interesting place. Um, I have modern pictures for you here. Oops. I totally messed up. Okay, right in the center there, from the south, looking north, you can see the Temple Mount platform and the Golden Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque there today. But the walls that you're seeing are those walls, much of them from the time of Jesus' day, from the time of King Herod. King Herod's the one that built that platform that you can go and stand and walk on today. Now, this picture that we have here is taken from the southern approach up towards Mount Moriah, Zion, Jerusalem. So uh, Abraham, as Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, although Isaac doesn't know that exactly at the beginning. Um, And then, of course, the angel tells Abraham to stop and provides a ram instead. This would have been the view Abraham would have had as Abraham would have come from the south, from the Negev, the desert, towards Mount Moriah. That kind of view up, obviously, minus the buildings, okay? Just think (laughs) land only. Now, if you're looking at this immediately, and I just read you that psalm from Psalm 125, it says, the Lord encircles Jerusalem the way the mountains, the Lord encircles his people the way the mountains encircle Jerusalem. What is the first thing you're noticing in this photo? I mean, from me here, it doesn't really look like mountains like we think of here in Northern California, right? But we might think of the Sierras. And in fact, when oftentimes you search like the Lord encircles Jerusalem, like the mountains, and you search that image, it's like really beautiful, like the Alps, right? Um, That is not how the mountains work here. And yet, I will tell you, um, I have hiked this way from this place of the photo towards the temple on more than one occasion to the Temple Mount platform. And it is a hike. Um, It is hard work. And you have to ascend to it. Um, This view here is still the same view we have. And I'm going to just point out a couple valleys to you. So Mount Moriah or Mount Zion or Jerusalem sits there right in the center. And there is a valley here called the Central Valley that you can't quite see because of the layers of um, occupation onto the land there where everyone just continues to live on top of one another, right? Um, That valley, though, when you're there walking it with your feet, it is hard work. And for those of you who've been with us in Israel, you know, right, it's hard work to get up there. Um, There's a beautiful western ridge over here. By the way, it does say Mount Zion shall not be moved, but I should tell you that the name moved. Um, Because if you go there today, Mount Zion is not there at Mount Moriah anymore. Now it's referred to, it's pretty much over by the western ridge, because when the crusaders showed up, they weren't really great biblical geographers, sorry to tell you. Um, they weren't great at a lot of things, but that was one of the things they also lacked, and they moved the name. So over there is Mount Zion, where if you go to Jerusalem University College, you can go there on Mount Zion. It's great. I, I, I went and attended there for some time. Uh, the Hinnom Valley, which is also called Gehenna, 
Um, sometimes does get snow, so hell can freeze over, in case you're wondering. Wraps here around this southern, so the western southern portion towards uh, Jerusalem. And then the Kidron Valley, which will then meet up with the Hinnom Valley and continue in the Kidron Valley, will go all the way to the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and dump there. When David showed up and wanted to find a place where God could put God's name, David took hold of a city at that time called Jebus, where the Jebusites lived. And when David showed up, he had that southern approach and came in and he saw this beautiful Gihon spring where you could have fresh water for the city that he was looking for and came on into that Canaanite area and fought off the Canaanites. And you can read all about this and ended up taking hold of Jebus. But of course, if you know the story about King David, he was not able to build a place for God to put God's name because he had war, blood on his hands. But he found and really secured that initial place where the people would come. And Jebus was the name then. Of course, later on, it turns into Jerusalem. Here's another picture from the 1900s. I love it. There's not a lot of buildings there you can really see. Much more of that ascent up from the southern approach. And here you can see an approach from the western hill, I mean, from the eastern hill of Mount of Olives towards that southern approach up that the pilgrims of Jesus' day would have been taking to go up into the house of God. So here's my last little schematic I want to show you. Maybe this topography will help you see how it is actually a lot of hard work to get there and how Jerusalem is indeed surrounded by mountains. In a weird little, kind of like in a bowl. It sits in the middle of a bowl. It is not the highest mountain there. In fact, Jerusalem, this is a view out towards the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem's 33 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's about 2,500 to 2,700 feet above sea level. And then if you're looking towards the east, towards the Dead Sea, it's about 14 miles west of the Dead Sea and 3,800 feet above the sea level of the Dead Sea. So quite a hike that other way. But it is not the tallest mount there. The Mount of Olives is much higher than Jerusalem. And you would think when you think of a holy place and you think of like ascent, that you'll go to the tallest peak. But Jerusalem is not on the tallest peak in that little area. It kind of more sits amongst those valleys. Psalm 121 gives us another picture of this in the Song of Ascents. If I raise my eyes to the hills, from where will my help come from? I immediately think that this is something a pilgrim would absolutely say. Because if you're coming from, let's say, if you're with Jesus, and you're coming from Galilee south, and you come through the Rift Valley, because that's really the easiest way to go, and the other hills are really, I don't know if you can tell, um, rough. That is rough terrain on both directions, guys. It's a lot of, every time I go to Jerusalem, my ears pop um, as I sit in my air-conditioned bus uh, because of the altitude change from all directions. And so as you are going up that ascent, you are going to go from lowest place on earth and near Jericho and the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea down there, so 600 feet below sea level, and then ascend all the way up to 2,700 feet above sea level um, when you get to Jerusalem. And that is a hike, and it's hot, and it's where the road of that Jesus places the parable of the Good Samaritan on, which is why they have a Good Samaritan Inn. It's not, that was not there in Jesus' day. They just put that there for a tourist site. But you can see 
that that is an ascent. And that's why these psalms are the psalms of ascent. So here we continue on in Psalm 121. A song of ascent. If I raise my eyes to the hills, from where will my help come from? I would want it to come from a gondola or a trolley as I'm hiking up. My help comes from Adonai, the maker of heaven and earth. Adonai will not let your foot slip. Your guardian is not asleep. No, the guardian of Israel never slumbers or sleeps. Adonai is your guardian at your right hand. Adonai provides you with shade. The sun can't strike you during the day or even the moon at night. Adonai will guard you against all harm. Adonai will guard your life. Adonai will guard your coming and going from now and forever. This is a beautiful song to sing as you ascend up to Jerusalem to worship God. And even that image of Adonai will provide you shade at your right hand. Like God is shade for us at the right hand. And if you stand in Jerusalem in the morning, as the sun rises in the east from the Dead Sea area and starts to come over, that beautiful Mount of Olives is taller than Jerusalem and is shade at the right hand. So the psalmist knows their geography, they know the place where they are going, and they're explaining that and calling upon those images for everyone traveling up. That road I showed you from Jericho on up towards Jerusalem is narrow. It is a sheer cliff down and a sheer cliff up. And to hear that Adonai will guard my life, that he will not let my foot slip that he is not asleep. He does not slumber nor sleep. And the poetry of this is quite beautiful. And I have it here we can listen to for a little bit. listening to the psalms sung in Hebrew for me that reminds me of those echoes that you can hear as you just think of the pilgrims for thousands of years who've made their way to the place where God put God's name. And as we ascend, then we actually have really beautiful theology, right? That Adonai is the source of help 
That word help is the same word that is used back in the garden when it looks at the human, at the Adam, and says, Adam, it is not good for a human to be alone. I shall make an Ezer Konegdo for you, a helper that is equal to you, opposite, facing you. Ezer. That same word, Ezer, for help, used here for God, as it is mostly throughout our text. The Adonai is our source of help. The Adonai is always guarding us. The Adonai is our protection from the elements. And the Adonai eternally cares for us. And as they sing this song in their approach up to worship God, they're, think, they're singing theology. They're singing what they know Adonai to be in their life and probably also comforting themselves as they walk a treacherous path that is known for robbers, that is known for slippery ways through, and you have this beautiful hope going on. So the Psalms of Ascent teach us about our geography, they teach us about the land, they teach us about God's provision, and they teach us this beautiful theology. They also remember and retell our story. Psalm 124 says this, a song of ascents by David. If Adonai hadn't been for us, let Israel repeat it. And everyone said, if Adonai hadn't been for us, when people rose to attack us, then when their anger blazed against us, they would have swallowed us alive. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. Yes, the raging water would have swept right over us. What are these, what's the psalmist talking about? Our escape from Egypt, right? If Adonai had not been for us, the torrent would have taken us. The enemies would have come over us. Blessed be Adonai who did not leave us to be prey for their teeth. We escaped like a bird from the hunter's trap. Our trap is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of Adonai, the maker of heaven and earth. All of that, all the world belongs to Adonai. And we tell the stories as we walk and as we pilgrimage up to the house of God. Psalm 132 tells us the story of David. A song of ascents. Adonai, remember in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to Adonai, vowed to the mighty one of Yaakov, of Jacob, I will not enter the house where I live or get into my bed. I will not allow myself to sleep or even close my eyes until I find a place for Adonai, a dwelling for the mighty one of Yaakov. We heard about it in Ephrat. We found it in the fields of Ya'ar. Let's go into his dwelling and prostrate ourselves at his footstool. Go up, Adonai, to your resting place, you and the ark through which you give strength. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May those loyal to you shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, don't turn away the face of your anointed one. Adonai swore an oath to David, an oath he will not break. One of the sons from your own body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my instruction, which I will teach them, then their descendants too forever will sit on your throne." For Adonai has chosen Zion. He wanted it as his home. This is my resting place forever. I will live here because I so much want to. I will bless it with plenty of meat. I will give its poor their fill of food. Its priests I will clothe with salvation and its faithful will shout for joy. I will make a king sprout there from David's line and prepare a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him there will be a shining crown. Our entire Davidic covenant that promises that the Messiah will come from David's line, that promises for us as followers of Jesus that Jesus will come, right? That is found in the Psalm of Ascents. They're telling their hope 
of what is to come and reminding Adonai and themselves of God's promises. And remember that King Solomon, when he finally was able to build this house for God, he said this, 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, but can God actually live on earth? Why heaven itself, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, so how much less house I have built. See, even though they are going up to the house of God and they have these beautiful songs of ascent, they knew that God didn't really live there. It was simply the place where God would put God's name and that they could encounter the presence of God, an experience with God. But heaven cannot contain God, much less this house that I've built with human hands. And God then later says in 1 Kings 9, after Solomon had finished building the house, Adonai appeared to Solomon a second time and said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea that you made before me, and I am consecrating this house which you built and placing my name there forever. My eyes and heart will always be there. So there's a desire to go to the place where God has said God will dwell and be, that we might have an encounter with God. And the Psalms of Ascent serve as liturgy. What words do we say when we get there? How does this work? Psalm 122 says this, a song of ascent by David. I was glad when they said to me, to the house of Adonai, let's go. Our feet were standing at your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city, fostering friendship and unity. It's this really interesting thing that's here because there's present and future in the same line at the same time. I was glad when they said to me, to the house of Adonai, let's go to the house of Adonai, and our feet were standing at your gates, and then while we were there. So it's like past and present and future all at once. And the rabbis picked up on this, and they mentioned it in the Talmud, in their commentary on the text. They said, on the journey... That pilgrimage journey, those going up to Jerusalem would say, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of Adonai. In Jerusalem, they would say, our feet were standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. And on the Temple Mount, they would say, hallelujah, praise God in his sanctuary from Psalm 150. And in the temple courtyard, they would say, let every soul, all that breathes, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Psalm 150. The Psalms served as instructions as to how to worship, what to do when you got there, what words you could say, how we would behave. When they said to me, I was glad when they said to me, to the house of Adonai, let's go. And then as that psalm continues, it says, the tribes have gone up there. The tribes of Adonai is a witness to Israel to give thanks to the name of Adonai. For there the thrones of justice were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for shalom in Jerusalem. May those who love you prosper. May shalom be within your ramparts, prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, shalom be with you. For the sake of the house of Adonai, our God, I will seek your well-being. It tells you what Jerusalem looks like. Ramparts, walls, more than one palace. That it was a beautiful place where people wanted to go. And the Psalms of Ascent also give us hope during exile. What do we do when we can't get there? What do we do as a people when the people of Israel are exiled in Babylon for 70 years? Psalm 126 gives voice to this. When Adonai restored Zion's fortunes, we thought we were dreaming. Our mouths were full of laughter and our tongues shouted for joy. Among the nations it was said, Adonai has done great things for them. Adonai did do great things with us and we are overjoyed. Return, here's the prayer, Return our people from exile, Adonai, as streams fill wadis in the Negev. In the desert, may water start to pour through 
these wadis, these beautiful valleys and canyons. And even today, just a couple weeks ago, as those rains land in the Judah mountains, those wadis fill with massive, huge flash flood streams. And that's the image that the psalmist is grabbing hold of. And as you look at this beautiful Negev, do you see where you can tell the streams have been? Where there's just a little bit, a little bit of green left, where life can live. And so when we hear that, return our people from exile, Adonai, as streams fill the wadis in the Negev. May those who sow in tears, those who sow in tears, will reap with cries of joy. That Negev scene with that water cutting through the land reminds me of the trail of pilgrims who were exiled out from Jerusalem, taken into captivity in Babylon, and then brought back home again. He who goes out weeping, the psalmist says, as he carries his sack of seed, will come home with cries of joy as he carries his sheaves of grain. That even that picture of exile as we're removed from the place where God has put God's name, where we've watched the destruction of that place, the picture that the psalmist gives is that those in exile have still had enough, their seeds turned into grain with them, and they're now returning home just as the water flows into the Negev, into dry and desolate places, the people of God return to the house of God. And they have found and excavated those beautiful pilgrimage roads, which you have to hike to get to. It is all hard work. Those roads that Jesus would have walked going up to worship God. The Psalms of Ascent create a place to encounter God while we were in exile. I think all of us here, we all live in a place where we're stuck between the yes and the not yet, right? as N.T. Wright always likes to talk about, we talk about this very often, that in Christ we have the fulfillment of all the promises of God through the death, burial, and resurrection, but we're still waiting to fully, completely see the new heavens and the new earth come crashing down. And our text gives voice to this, right? Jesus shows up in John two sixteen and says, when he's very angry about how they're treating God's house, how dare you turn my father's house into a market, Right? There was a physical place that people understood as the house of God. But then Jesus also says in John, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And when he says that, he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about something that's yet to come. Hebrews 12, 22 in our New Testament. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, Galatians 4, 26. And of course, the beautiful vision in Revelation. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We are still in exile today. We can go to a place. We can go and see a place where the temple once stood. We can go and see a place where God has put God's name. But it's not as it was in Jesus' day. It was torn down in 70 CE by the Romans, as Jesus predicted would be the case. We are in between places. We are in between God's houses. So where does our help come from today? And where do we encounter the presence of God in the world today? See, people just after that destruction of the temple in 70 CE, just after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, about 40 years later, were having to ask these same questions. 
What do we do when we can't go to the house to pray? What do we do when we are physically kicked out of the land and cannot be at the place where God puts God's names? What do we do when it's been destroyed before our very eyes? And the rabbis in the second and third century, just after the time of Jesus and the disciples, were also having these conversations, and they're eerily similar to things Jesus said. Avot de Rabbi Natan is like this is the sayings of Rabbi Natan in chapter 4. Once Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai went out from Jerusalem and Rabbi Yehoshua followed him. And when he saw the temple in ruins, he cried out, Woe are we! For the place where atonement was given for all the sins of Israel is in ruins. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai responded to him, My son, don't be distressed. For we have a source of atonement which is just as effective. And what is it? Acts of loving kindness. As it is written, for I desire loving kindness and not sacrifice and knowing God more than burnt offerings. And he quotes Hosea 6 in that. Just as Jesus does in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We know how to encounter God because we are told by Jesus in many places throughout all of our gospels and then by Paul and the apostle and the apostles as they move forward that it is through our acts of service and loving kindness, the way that we love God and love our neighbor and those we perceive to be our enemies. This is how we enter into the house of God. By the way, this doesn't even touch on all of Acts chapter 2, which we've done a whole study on here, on how God changes God's address in Acts chapter 2 with the fulfillment of Pentecost and Shavuot and landing on people. So that's a whole other study. In Mishnah, Avot 3.2, another rabbinic writing, just a bit after the time of Jesus, this, this rabbi, Rabbi Hanayah ben Tradion, teaches, two who sit together and there are no words of Torah among them are considered a company of the insolent. Like you're not allowed to sit together and not talk Torah. Okay, everyone's got to talk Torah. As it is written, happy is the man who has not joined the company of the insolent. That's a reference to Psalm 1. However, when two sit together and there are words of Torah among them, the Shekinah is to be found among them. And Shekinah is just a Hebrew word that talks about like sort of an experience of the glory of God, the glory in the presence of God. So if two people sit together and talk about Torah, then the glory of God is to be found among them. Hear Jesus, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. In the name of Jesus, as we sit and as we study. So do we have a place to be while we wait in this in-between time? Yes. And we can encounter the presence of Christ in our community. And we do that when we are together, when we sit and we study together, when we serve together, when we love together. And this is going to be a psalm we end on, this psalm of ascent, Psalm 133. A song of ascents by David. Oh, how good. How pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to live together in harmony. It is like fragrant oil on the head that runs down over the beard, over the beard of Aaron, and flows down on the collar of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon that settles on the mountains of Zion, for it was there that Adonai ordained the blessing of everlasting life. The psalmist here in the psalm of ascents declares that when brothers and sisters dwell together, sit together in harmony, it is like the farthest, most highest, most northern peak in Israel, Mount Hermon, that snow-capped peak, that dew there is on Jerusalem all the way down south 
in the Judah mountains. And it's so powerful when we see brothers and sisters dwelling together in harmony. And this will lead us to what, for us as followers of Jesus, is the holiest place in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. It's the place where we can 99, 90% chance be sure of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when you go there, it's incredibly powerful and moving, and the entrance is just these little ridged gates down below. But it's also so upsetting, you guys. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to blow it all for you. Protestants don't really like the place. So much so that they decided in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to go outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and find a different place that they've made look much more like an English garden. And they've said, that's the place. Because it's a lot more comfortable. If you come with me to Israel, I don't take you there. Sorry. It's an excellent tomb, but it is not Jesus's. It is a tomb from the time of the kings of the Iron Age. It's beautiful, and it feels really lovely. They've made it great for us Westerners. But this place, when you walk in, you have to know that the Christians that run and have run for millennia, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, fight with each other and don't trust one another and have like fisticuffs come out between one another at least once a year. And it's complicated. And there's arguments over who gets to sweep and who gets to have that space and at what time. And there's even a ladder here in this picture. You can't quite see it. But that ladder went up there one day. Somebody was going to try to clean. And then everybody got really upset. And the ladder's still there. It's been there for hundreds of years. (laughs) Nobody, it's, it's just a big argument. So much so that because they don't trust one another, the key is held by a Muslim family there in the Muslim quarter of the city and has been there, in the Christian quarter actually, in the city, has been there, held by that family for over 700 years. And they go and they unlock in the morning and commence and it's how they caretake for the community there. Because the Christians don't trust one another. But every time I go there, I'm actually deeply hopeful. Because this is why Jesus came. To reconcile us to God and to one another. Because he knows we fight. He knows that even though the psalmist declared how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, it is like the dew of Hermon landing on Zion. It is like oil being poured on the head, down the beard, running down the beard of Aaron, the priest running into his collar. The psalmist also knows, just like we do, that man, are we in need of a savior. Because we like to fight. And we want to compete, and we want what's ours. And so even though this place is so complicated, it's my favorite place because it reminds me so much of why we need Jesus and why he came. And I'm so deeply grateful for the ways in which together, We can try our very best. One of our core values here, we have five core values at Spark, and one is reconciliation. And it's for exactly this reason. That the work of reconciliation, of us to God, of God with us and with creation and with one another, that work is what encounters the dwelling place, and it is an ascent up to the place of God's dwelling. It's where we can start to sense in bits and little small ways 
that presence of God coming crashing here on earth as it is in heaven. Last Saturday, there was a very frightening occurrence in the state of Texas, and the rabbi here, Rabbi Chaim, is a dear friend, and it was his dear friend that was taken hostage in Texas. And after Shabbat was over, I sent a text and said, I'm praying for you. I didn't know it was his friend. Um, and he said, thank you, we're having a vigil at 7.30. So, okay, well, if it's appropriate, I'd be happy to join you. It's online. He said, please, please come and please pray. Absolutely. While we're all there, and people are very worried and crying and upset, we got the word that they had escaped. And it was at that moment that it was my turn to pray. So, in tears of gratitude and relief, the prayer that I had prayed, had planned to pray, was Psalm 121. It was that psalm of, Lord, to whom shall my help come from? I lift my eyes up to you, and the guardian of Israel does not slumber, does not sleep, and he will protect us and be our shade at our right hand. And it was such hope and it reminded me, too, of the beautiful Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. And so, Sparkers, my prayer for all of us is that we will find ways in which we dwell with one another if we, when we find unity and harmony in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, with various houses of worship, And ultimately, my prayer is that we find it between ourselves and our creator. That through Christ, we are reconciled unto God. With that, we'd like to invite you to the table where all are welcome. Through this beautiful act of of sacrifice and reconciliation, Christ invites us all to this table, all. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.